Uh, and if you didn't know, that's a long way from here. So um, I traveled about at least 20,000 miles via air, and so lots of uh, jet lag, but lots of great stories. Also really glad to have the um, kids in here. That, a couple of reasons we do that. Uh, we want to do that periodically throughout the year so they can catch just a little bit of a vision of what it's like to be um, a, a part of the church. We don't want the church to just grow up where the kids are totally isolated from everything that the adults do. And when we talk about missions, um, it, it's our prayer that we be able to pass the baton on to the next generation. And, and I even I uh, was thinking about this this morning, that there might be um, someone in here that is going to give their life to see the gospel go forward um, on the continent of Asia. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue our discipleship series. And I want to start with the story of Dr. William Leslie. Dr. William Leslie was uh, a medical missionary in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, he relocated there in 1912. He was originally a part of the Baptist Missionary Society that was the same uh, group that was founded by Adoniram Judson, if you may be familiar with his name, who reached uh, the Burmese people with the gospel. So in 1912, um, Dr. William Leslie relocated to the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Africa. He spent 17 years there, um, and actually when he went home, he thought that he was an abject failure. Like, he failed to see the fruit that he wanted. As he returned home, he was very discouraged. Nine years later, he died. Um, And this, you know, I read this on Twitter, so it's kind of like clickbait, so you have to bear with me a little bit. But he said, 84 years later, they made a startling discovery, right? So people made a return trip to this part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, and anticipating maybe that there were a group of people that had some exposure to the name of Jesus, but what they found actually shocked them. There was um, a group of reproducing churches that were flourishing inside the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, really where no Westerner had seen for decades. And um, I, I draw your attention to that story for a couple of reasons. I think one is that the fruit of our lives oftentimes is invisible. Right? I mean, we oftentimes can be discouraged and think that the things that we do don't really make a difference. Right? We can think that fruit is for people that are out there and somehow make the wrong assumption because we don't see immediate fruit, that fruit doesn't happen. Also illustrates the point that there are places that are on the globe that are forgotten by people, um, at least from our perspective, um, that aren't forgotten by God. And I, I think for us, especially as we're, um, this is our first trip into Asia last year, we took a trip into Haiti. For us as a church, I think it's a really special moment not to despise the days of small beginnings, right? Every movement of God begins with a dream. Every movement of God begins with a first prayer. Every marriage that's restored begins with humbling you know, husband and wife before Jesus, seeing the gospel go forward to the next generation takes a step of intentional parenting. So I want to draw your attention to all of that, that God loves to make things grow, right? He's not in the business of wasting the sacrifice of his son. He's in the business of causing the fruit of Jesus Christ to 
I mean, the, the, really the goal and the good news of Jesus Christ to bear fruit not only in our lives but around the world. And that's what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 1. I, wanna, um, I really want to unpack some discipleship lessons that I learned from my trip to Asia and I think will serve us as we look at um, Colossians chapter 1. So we're going to read Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 6 and verses 15 through 20. So if you have your Bibles open... Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Colossians 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, may be seated. Let's pray. Father, it is good to come underneath Your Word. Thank You that we were able to sing your word and to experience the tangible benefits of being your people just by being together and singing and reminding ourselves of who we are because of Jesus. And now I just pray that you would expand our horizons and our thoughts and our prayers, what we imagine or ask or think, that you would do more than that as we look to what you're doing around the world. Thank you for this church. Thank you for its faithfulness over um, the last 15 years. Thank you that you are using this church to bear fruit, not only here, but around the world. And that is an evidence of your faithfulness and the sacrifice of Jesus. But to do that, we need you to help us pay attention. It's natural to be tired in these moments as we uh, experience a time change. So I pray that these moments would be fruitful, uh, and I pray that you would bless the minds and the hearts of our kids as they're with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I, I want us to see and make the connection of is fruit is not random, right? It's not this random process that happens sometimes and sometimes it doesn't, but it is the inevitable work 
of being connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says um, in verses 5 and 6, let's look at those together. It says, Of this you have heard before, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So, What's going on in the church at Colossae is this is a group of people that have lost their way. This was a church that had grown insulated, right? I mean, it really had just become all about them. It had become about the rules that they thought they were supposed to keep. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. All the things that they were against instead of the things that they were for. And so from the beginning, Paul is praying for this church. And you, you begin to hear a little bit of his heart for them. That their eyes would be lifted up off of themselves, off of their ingrownness. That they would be lifted up to see Jesus and that he's the firstborn from the dead. That he's over all of creation. That he's preeminent. And that they would be drawn back to this message of the gospel. And when we talk about the gospel, what we're talking about is all that God does to save us in and through Jesus. It's that message that bears fruit. That's why in the book of Philippians that Paul can say, I don't even care. He's got some opponents that are preaching the gospel out of rivalry and selfish ambition. He says, I don't care who's preaching the gospel. I just care that the gospel goes forward because it's the gospel that bears fruit. And so when we go forward and we proclaim the gospel, the gospel begins to bear fruit, not only in our own lives, but in all around the world. And so to help this church get their eyes on what Jesus is doing in the world, he says, I want you to look that the same message that you've received is bearing fruit all over the world. And so there's an edifying effect for us as we take a look off of our normal context, what we did this week, and we see that there is a gospel that's bearing fruit all over the world. And I I had the privilege of spending uh, the last 17 days or so in the nation of Nepal, and then uh, a few days in Singapore as well. And um, this is going to be hard to do. My conviction about what I saw and experienced is the church is flourishing there, apart from almost no... Western help at all. There are places, like I said, just like in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, that the church is flourishing probably where no Western person has ever been. That the gospel itself is bearing fruit and growing. And this is my conviction for me personally and for us as a church. That the church in the first world and the third world desperately need one another. Not that The church in the third world needs the first world, but we need the church in the third world. Um, In many ways, they need to disciple us. There is a mandate for us to disciple the nations, but um, I believe that the call of God for us as a people is to be discipled by the nations. I learned lessons of faith and risk and joy and faithfulness and the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases and never changes for people around the globe, right? The same message that bears fruit in our lives is bearing fruit and growing. So, with less than 1% of the population 
actually being Christian, it was amazing to see these pockets of Christianity not retreating, not feeling persecuted per se, but going forward with boldness, with courage, with faith, seeing the gospel at the center of who they are, wanting to see people come to know Jesus Christ. Now, this is a beautiful nation. It's the home of Mount Everest, and I was able to share a few photos um, last night with, with a couple of my friends, and uh, it's just an amazing place to see, honestly, but it's also a, a very broken place. There's about 80% unemployment in the country, so it is just devastating economically. That 80% unemployment means that most husbands have to leave their families for three years at a time. So to provide for their family, they have to relocate to a um, an Arabic nation like Qatar or the United Arab Emirates and take a very low-paying, menial job so that they can send back money to their wives. And so most of the churches essentially are women and children. But these ladies and these children, and that, this is what I want you to know, um, they are doing some beautiful, amazing work for the kingdom. Um, with the fathers out of the picture, I was able to just see that they take great pride, the Nepali people, in who they are. Um, they don't want to just leave their um, nation and leave it barren. What they want to do is they want to see it grow and they want to see it built up. And so um, in that father's absence, I mean, there's whole families. This is, this is the kinds of things. There's no beggars in Nepal. They all work diligently every day to do whatever they can to make a living. And so I came across this mountainside, and the whole country, honestly, is mountains. And, I mean, there's a, a family of uh, a mom and, and four daughters, and they're sitting there with ball-peen hammers, and they're taking rocks that are bigger, and they're breaking them into smaller rocks, and they're putting them aside so that they can sell them. And they make about $2 a day doing that, and they do that every single day, day after day. But the amazing thing is they do it with joy. Like, they love to be a, a part of that country. They love to see um, the gospel go forward. And um, it's, it's an amazing thing. But the Nepali people are also despised. Um, I, I experienced this firsthand. So flew from Houston to Dubai, and I probably flew on the nicest airliner in the world. And that was an amazing privilege in and of itself. But then when I decided that we're going to make a connecting flight to Nepal, um, in Dubai, the, the Nepalis are despised people, so the, they had a terminal that was probably a 20-minute drive away from the main terminal. And I had a little, I mean, just a small window of what it was like to be despised because it was associated with those folks. And, but what, what I've experienced is that these are precisely the kinds of people that Jesus loves to pour out his grace upon. Jesus loves to meet people at the margins. And so what that means for us is that there's something special about God's concern for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. We say that over and over again, but it's absolutely true that God loves to pour out his grace on, hum on humble people. But this also is a, a, a country with 
real darkness. And what I can say is that the gospel continually is pushing back darkness in this nation. So in America, if you want to start a church, what do you do? All right, probably get a place to meet, maybe get a band, you know, hopefully a cool one, Throw, shoot out some mailers maybe, maybe invite some people, right? In Nepal, this is how churches begin. They heal the sick, they cast out demons, and the power of God comes and it flourishes. Like every church that exists in Nepal happens because of signs and wonders. I know that may or may not fit on everyone's theological grid here this morning, but it's just a simple fact, right? There's no such thing as nominal Christianity in Nepal. There's no such thing as someone that doesn't believe in the desperate need for the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, my friend Tom, who I went with, who's a pastor in North Carolina, who actually is going to be visiting us in the fall, um, during his worship gathering, I mean, it was, you know, there's unbelievers in the midst. I mean, and a demon manifests itself, and he casts out the demon, and the woman was uh, introduced to Jesus. I mean, that's normal, everyday Christianity um, in Nepal. So I also got to preach in, uh, this is a real privilege, in, in a church plant. And uh, there were no demons in my gathering, so God knows what I can handle, I guess. But I got to preach in this church that was nearly two years old, 20 believers. They don't have buildings like we have buildings. Um, This is probably smaller than most kids' bedrooms, you know, because the Hindu people think that Christianity is bad luck, so they won't rent out facilities to them. So they find wherever they can to meet. And there's 20 people cramped in this room. And this was a group of people that were beautiful. They had this wonderful gift of faith. Um, And I had the privilege of just opening up God's Word, Ephesians chapter 1, and telling them who they are in Jesus Christ. I got to say, this is what it means for you to be in Christ. This is what it is for God to feel the same way that he feels about Jesus, he feels about you. That you're loved by him, that you're treasured by him, that you're chosen by him, that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And you could just see in the room that people were built up and they were edified and there were tears in people's eyes. And I didn't tell you this part, but this is really cool for me as a pastor. They're like, hey, we just, we don't have a lot of requirements, but we just need you to preach an hour. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, I felt like Briar Rabbit a little bit. I was like, okay, you can throw me in the Briar Patch. We'll see what we can do. So we'll see how long we go today. Um, but it, it's this real fruitfulness that comes from the gospel, where there's this universality of the human condition, where every heart really wonders deep down, what does God think about me? Right? How does God view me? And to see really burdens lifted. It's a tremendous privilege. Also in that same worship gathering, um, we arrived late because we were driving in. It was probably an hour drive to this church and we were in a different city and we arrived and they were already singing exuberantly, by the way. And they knew we were coming and they knew I was an American so that automatically kind of made me a rock star. So I tried to temper their expectations. But there was this little, I mean, just beautiful 
Nepali girl leading worship, probably my daughter's age, 15, 16 years old. And she's singing with all of her heart in Nepali. I don't understand any of their songs, but I mean, I can, I can get into worship anywhere. And I guess she knew I was going to be there. And she, I began to kind of make out this faint sound of Rich Mullins. Our God is an awesome God. So I could pick up that, that uh, chord. And it, she started to try to sing in broken English. And I'm sure that was just to edify me. And there was this wonderful moment where uh, I'm not a great singer, but I could sing. I knew the words to this song, and I could sing that over the church. And to just see in that moment that, that God's presence filled the room. That, and, and then in my mind immediately was back here to you guys and say the same God that's at work bearing fruit in Jonesboro is bearing fruit in this room with these people. Our God really is an awesome God. You know, it's just... It's, it's an amazing thing to be able to see God work. But these folks are coming out of a Hindu background. And so there's this real fear-based religion just like exists here in Jonesboro. Where people are afraid. They want to be assured of how God feels about them. And I was able to tell them that the grace of Jesus means the end of karma for them. That... What goes around doesn't come around because Jesus took it all and see really good fruit born. Um, Second lesson I want us to learn is that godliness and hospitality transcend culture. Um, First day I was in the city of Kathmandu and then went on this 17-hour jeep ride. And it was every bit as rough as it sounds. I mean, I was holding on for dear life. I had no idea, but I mean, the entire country is mountains, and so you just go up a mountain and down a mountain. So we drove 17 miles, and there's a man named Amar. We may have some photos um, of these mountains, but um, try to find them for you guys. Yeah, so drove 17 hours. These are farms that exist. These are on the back side of a mountain. This is about like over one mountain you would be in China. And so this is like right on the Nepal-China border, just like the illustration that I used at the beginning. Um, Almost no Western person has ever been there. So we came to visit Amar, and Amar is this wonderful, godly Nepali pastor And there's houses like this all the way up the side of the mountain. And half of this village, there's 90 families. 45 of them have come to know Jesus, right? All simply because he went around and he asked how he could pray. See, there's a, the weather actually is better there than it is here. But his church was 20 minutes straight up the side of a mountain. I don't know, it's a a church called Grace Church. Um, And they, on a Sunday morning, have 150 people packed into a room no bigger the size of my living room. People walk three hours to the meeting, they spend three or four hours together, and they walk three hours back home, all because of the good news of Jesus. And it was a privilege to be able to stay with Amar. But, you know, we went to encourage these guys, but, I mean, at the end of the day, they're the ones that encouraged us. Amar lives in a house that's essentially made of mud, dirt floors. But he absolutely 
knocked our socks off with his hospitality. Didn't speak a word of English, but he wanted to serve us so much, and he served us so well. That's Amara there. That's uh, my friend Brian on the right. That's Tom. That's me. And then Amar, who is a wonderful man. And he gave us his very best. Um, they sleep on the floor. They gave us their bedding. Um, <laughs> I've told this story, and some people said that they probably couldn't handle this. But um, it's an honor to be able to travel. Uh, and they want to give you their best. And one of their best is a chicken curry that they make. And so Amar... Um, this is actually, a, I'll finish the story about Amar and dinner. This is a team of people that we, we ended up meeting with people from the nation of India. So most of these are Indian pastors uh, that met us there to be with Amar. We ended up traveling to a conference where I'll, I'll allude to in a few minutes. Um, but Amar, serving all these people that came and gave us his best. Um, and to do that, he had to slaughter his own chicken that he raises, you know, and so um, we had chicken curry, which is a huge delicacy. They only eat once or twice a year, but they gave us their best, and it is an absolutely astounding experience to know that that actually cost them something, and that was, that was the best that they had, and it, it was a beautiful picture of the gospel, and so the, the way I, I draw your attention to that, because I, I think we can underestimate what it means to care for one another well. Like when we open up our hearts and we open up our homes and we say, I want to invite you in. I want you to experience the peace and the love and the mercy of Jesus. So this was just a, this was a joyous time. So godliness and hospitality transcend culture. Um, number three, sustaining grace is at the center of all of our stories. So this team of people that you just saw there ended up being a group of 50 to 60, probably about 60 leaders from the nation of Nepal and India that were coming together just to be trained. They wanted to understand what does it mean to be gospel-centered. They wanted to understand what does it mean to have sound doctrine, but also believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was just as a wonderful time. I had the privilege of speaking a, a, a number of times. Um, the, f- the first session that I did talk very seriously about some of the same things that we talk about here, gospel relationships, you know, and you saw the, there were some people in, in this room that weren't reconciled together, and you saw them come together around Jesus, and this is, this is a church planting movement. This is the church that I actually, this is the church plant that I preached at, see the little guy there, so mostly women, but it was a, this beautiful little room this one-room uh, church there. And we're talking about sustaining grace. What I saw over and over again is that God is committed to meeting people in their pain. I met a man named Hari. Hari had recently had a motorcycle accident. If you've ever seen uh, any kind of driving that takes place in India or Nepal, um, yeah, I mean, that actually took more faith than almost anything is to ride with these folks on the road. But Hari had had a, an accident, and uh, he had actually been laid up in a hospital for three or four months. And that, on top of the fact that when he planted his church uh, probably six or seven years ago, I mean, it was just him and his wife and his two kids. No one would even rent him a room because they knew that he was a Christian 
He found someone to have pity on him. He stayed in the back, really, like a storeroom of a concrete store. They had one blanket, so there were like two kids. He described them as an ice cream sandwich. They kept each other warm. The kids were in the middle. The parents were on the outside. And they didn't have, I mean, they planted this church just on faith alone. And slowly by slowly, God met them. The church began to grow. Um, Hari recently had this accident, and he's been... um, laid up for a few months, and so he's not able to do much as far as ministry goes. And um, the elders allowed me to go with some cash to be able to, to give and to invest. And so we were able to help Hari um, kind of get back on his feet and help bless his church in that way. Also met a man named Hira. His story is by far the most tragic that I encountered. Um, the economic poverty is unbelievable. Hari was married uh, for a number of years, about eight years ago. His wife developed tuberculosis, turned into pneumonia. All he needed was $20 American to be able to get the medicine that his wife needed. He couldn't get it, and she died. That's, I mean, that's the kind of needs that we're talking about, $20, right? Probably most of us will spend that on lunch today. She passed away. He's since remarried. Had two kids from the first marriage, has two kids um, from his second marriage. And as we're interacting and just kind of understand that, uh, I mean, school's not free there. You know, I mean, it takes an investment by the parents. So he has four kids trying to pastor this church, wondering how he's going to be able to keep his kids in school. And obviously, if there's no education, there's not going to be any future for these kids. And so... Um, It was a great joy also to be able to um, say on behalf of you all that we were going to put his four kids through school for a year and take care of him and take care of that burden. That's, um, yeah, so I want to thank the elders. I want to thank you for your faithfulness. And I I know um, it's just hard to to look at someone because we're in the same stage of life. And I do realize how much that I've been given you know, but to look at a guy, I mean, he's just wondering how they're, they're going to survive. But I mean, it's not like his life is not fruitful. I mean, the church is growing and thriving. And so, yeah, we have so much to learn from these folks. Sustaining grace holds us all together. Um, so I think we can learn so much from them, but they do need our support, like in some real and tangible ways. Um, this is very much like the New Testament. Um, so there's explosions of growth and power and transformation. But they're also vulnerable to false teaching. They're also vulnerable to attack. I mean, there's some false doctrine that's kind of come in from Korea, and it's pulling a lot of new believers away. The pastors need to be equipped with doctrine. I mean, the honest truth is almost everyone in this church is equipped better um, than the pastors are in this nation. There's not very many materials that exist in their own language. Um, Most of them speak multiple languages, but they need more things in their own language. So we just did our best in those um, four days to impart uh, a solid foundation. But what we're going to end up doing, and the fruit of this trip is there's uh, around 31 pastors uh, and churches that want to partner together um, with our church and a number of other churches to be able to, to see this kind of gospel movement go forward. And so 
Um, in that, there's going to be a long-term strategy where we go and we equip the church, where we send teams of people in. They need not only just doctrinal training, but I mean, um, you know, I mean, obviously with husbands being gone for three years at a time, they need practical instruction. What does marriage look like? What does family look like? Um, there, there honestly has been a lot of legalistic doctrine that's kind of infiltrated the church. I mean, they're really attracted to guys that yell and scream a lot. Um, and I get why that is, because um, they're one of the few people that are actually talking about power, you know? Um, they simply don't have the luxury of not having spiritual power on their side. So um, it was an amazing privilege to be able to talk about both the gospel being at the center and then the spirit being at work um, and just seeing God work. Um, I had the privilege also of closing out this conference, and this was probably as close to heaven as I've ever been. Uh, I taught on um, communion. And just what a gift that can be to a local church, to leaders. And I told them that it was an anticipation of the celebration of the marriage supper to come. And um, I think I've done something similar here. But they actually took me up on it. And they um, said, man, we can't wait. And so they cleared out all the chairs they played, uh, I think it's Matt Redmond's Happy Day in their language. And I mean, it was like dance party. Like it was amazing. And we were able to uh, take place, just see the joy. So it really was the culmination of seeing the gospel bear fruit there over and over again. So being involved in the nations for us is, is not an optional extra. I simply don't think that we can be who God has made us to be apart from being involved in the nations, um, particularly being involved in the nations in a way where unreached people groups are at the center. And so we met a man named Chandra who is actively planting churches where Jesus has not ever been named. And that's a, a great privilege for us to be able to invest in that. Um, I love what's taking place here as people are taking short-term mission trips to Haiti. Also, Campus Outreach, I've heard a number of you guys also are taking short-term mission trips. So I'm excited about that kind of being the norm here. Um, and it's just my, my prayer, it's my desire, it's my ambition. You're going to hear this again. I'd love to see every person take a short-term mission trip in the next five years because I think it will change your perspective not only of the world, but of our context. Like you'll be able to see things that you wouldn't normally see as you see the gospel bearing fruit in a different context. So I want to encourage you to, to do that. Like if you haven't signed up for something and you want to get involved, Haiti's a good on-ramp, but there's going to be multiple opportunities in the nation of Nepal over the next several years um, where, uh, I mean, there's going to be, if someone wants to relocate, I think there's some work that can be done on the sex trafficking front. If there's um, if people want to take short-term trips to help to equip, I mean, I think there's going to be all of those kinds. Um, and then, as I'm getting to know these leaders in India, there's 1.87 billion people in India. So there's uh, countless opportunities for us as well. But I want to end with this. And a primary way that I think we can serve them is financially. Um, it's a real privilege that God would invite us into a work like this where almost no Western person has been to be able to see God at work. 
So about $150 a month. Um, this is not compulsion. I don't want anybody to give out of guilt because they feel bad. But, I mean, if you want to invest your money and you want to see it multiplied, $150 a month will support a pastor and a church or a church plant. So you may not be able to give $150 a month, but what I'd love to see is, you know, a gospel community come together and say, yeah, we can support a church. Yeah? We can see the gospel go forward to the ends of the earth for $150 a month. I mean, that's, that's an amazing privilege to be able to do that. Um, many of these guys walk hours upon hours, and they pastor multiple churches on Sunday. So it makes uh, my workload seem very light, you know. Um, but they walk almost everywhere they go. $2,000 uh, will provide a scooter that will greatly increase their effectiveness in ministry so they can drive back and forth. Um, and because the church is persecuted, most of them need to build their own buildings. There's no rental facility. About 10,000 U.S. will build a church building. And so, yeah, I, I don't want to manipulate anyone. We're going to have some giving cards. I just want you to think about that. I want you to pray about that. How would God have you come together? What would it look like for gospel communities to come together? What would it look like for individuals to come together? Just to see um, that we can make a real difference in seeing the, the gospel go forward to the ends of the earth. Also, this is my, this is my favorite discovery. Um, like, even in the most remote villages that I was at, everyone's on Facebook. It's amazing to me. Like, that's disturbing to me and also encouraging to me. Um, there's teenagers sitting on top of a rock, <laughs> like in the middle of Nepal, and they're on Facebook, but they want to be friends. And so I think there's ways that um, I'd love to connect individuals inside this church with people and just to say, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about you, you know? I mean, that's an amazing gift that we can actually do that. I want to close um, by reading Romans 16, and then we're just going to pray for Nepal, and we're going to worship Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. This is the benediction of the book of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank You that You allow us to join You where You're already at work. Please help us to understand that we don't have to twist Your arm to move, but that You actually are moving, that You actually are causing fruit to be born in our lives and around the world. We take just a moment to pray for our brothers and sisters in Nepal. Um, thank you for this privilege of this trip, but I pray that you would just begin to cement in our hearts as a local church um, what it would look like to come alongside this nation, what it would look like for us to invest in seeing unreached people groups reached for your namesake. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you for your power that's on display. Um, I pray that you would help us 
rightly view our position in the world. I pray that you would help us to be learners first as we go into other contexts, that we would not arrive as we're the saviors from the West, that we would come as humble learners, as really so much of our faith in this country is atrophied. I pray that you would help us to be strengthened as we see the gospel go forward to the nations that's bearing fruit all over the world and growing. I pray that you would continue to encourage us and build us up. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to